Welcome back to another episode of Filmmaker's Cookbook. I am your host, as always. My name is Michelangelo, and I'm joined... By me, Charles, the other host. The, the less good one. The more good one. The less gooder, or more gooder, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be back. How have you been since we last... Um, we last talked. I've been good. There have been quite a few movies. Went and saw a bunch. Lots of things. Lots of things to talk about. Nice. There are two movies that in per- specifically I watched recently. I'm sure that you've watched these two. So without further ado, let's just kind of jump into the beginning of segment one, if you would, for our, I guess, our concession impression segment. Let's give our, our little quick reviews of some of the, the recent films we've watched. Uh, Chase, we want to go first. What was, a, what was the first film you watched this recently? Theater Camp. Fun little movie. Have you seen movies like Best in Show? It's kind of a mockumentary style comedy, a sort of extreme, but like very low key location. And so this one takes place at a theater camp and it's pretty fun. I I gave it a popcorn. Gotcha. I haven't seen it. So I like a good comedy. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah, It's a little like character satire, fun little, little movie. And then They Clone Tyrone is actually shockingly good. It's on Netflix. Totally recommend it. I actually gave it a peanut M&M's. It's like this sci-fi black exploitation movie. It was great. Oh, I've been seeing trailers for this all over the place. And by yeah. all over the place, I mean probably Instagram and YouTube ads. It, it was like really good. Nice. I, okay. I enjoyed almost every second of it. Cool. I'll have to definitely check it out then. Because I was thinking that it was already on my list of like I, I wanted to watch. But, uh, you know, I guess now that with that review, I, I'm definitely going to watch it. Like hundred percent, it's gonna. It moved up my list of most urgently should watch. But I guess it's on Netflix. So I can watch it whatever. So maybe I'll watch it during the week. It's very trippy in a fun way. It it looks very trippy in a fun way. The the art direction is really great as well. And then the other Netflix movie that I watched recently was Nimona, which I also really enjoyed. I didn't think I was gonna enjoy it. It kind of looked like a little childish when I saw the trailers for it. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually watched it, I actually really enjoyed it, and I gave it a popcorn. Nice. Okay. So this is actually a, a little fun one, actually, because I, I mentioned Nimona to you if you don't remember if you remember mm-hmm. and the director i believe the producer and the writer all came to my work and gave like a little speech on the film and i, I guess writer is maybe a loose term because i'm not sure exactly if the same writer wrote the script for the film as well but it was based on like a webtoon webcomic mm-hmm. they wrote the thing and then they kind of I guess assisted in uh, helping out with the story and like overlooking the story for Nomoda. Very interesting, you know how they did the, the whole the whole journey of that film. Now this is nothing purely on speaking of of the film itself, but more of just like the journey of the creation of the film, where it it was initially a Disney film. Oh wow! Okay. And then it was owned. It was through the company that made like what was it called Ice Age and those things, those movies. Sure. Those, like those animated films. Blue Blue Sky or something. Yeah, and then I think Disney shut them down after they acquired them. So they were working through Disney through that company, and then they closed down, and then the movie was dead for a while, and then Netflix hired them and was like, "You guys just finish it up." I don't want to go too much into it because I don't want to spoil a lot of things. But the from what I heard, because I haven't actually read the graphic novel, but the story seemed to be a lot more streamlined for the movie and it cut a lot of characters. I mean, I guess that makes sense because it was like an entire comic book, com- like compounded into an hour and thirty minute movie, hour forty minute movie. But you know, 
it, it was fun. I did like it. I liked the whole like sentiment and teacher, and I kind of liked that. It was like a fun like future past combination. Like I like the aesthetic of it. Everything was was fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed the animation. It was it was very much comic book brought to life, but in a slightly different way than we've seen like from for instance uh, Spider Verse. Spider Verse is obviously very much comic book brought to life, but this one mm-hmm. was a little smoother version of that. I thought. Yeah, and and I thought it was cool. I don't know. I, I thought it had some like really interesting characters that you don't normally see. Like I think Nimona uh, herself is like a fun character that you don't see very often. You know the it's very Shrek actually. You know the the villain ish character turns out to be the good guy all along. Yeah, it was good. I also would say popcorn for me as well. What else you got? I saw Disney's haunted mansion. It was. Whoa predictably not great <laughs> oh dang okay i was actually gonna watch it this weekend so okay i'm a little disappointed that hearing that but i don't know i was excited you know like it was a great cast yeah the, the casting for it got me excited for it even though it, it looks bad and i actually heard an article this morning saying that it had like the worst live action opening weekend or opening day or something like that since the original Haunted Mansion movie. Okay. I don't know why what Disney was thinking. I guess it didn't really work well the first time and it didn't work equally as well for the second time. Well, Disney's whole business model now has shifted towards streaming and they just need content to fill their streaming service so i don't think they necessarily care that it was bad or that it didn't do well at the box office because they know that once it's on streaming on disney plus there will be millions of parents who will put it on so their children are distracted for like two hours (laughs) that's what they're doing i I can see it and it just felt very paint by the numbers in a way that was like kind of unappealing so i gave it a hot dog because i was just i was just bored what else do you have so i saw talk to me which was this A24 horror film, which was pretty good. I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was one of the few horror films that, like, really does drama well and storytelling well. It almost is as good as the first Candyman. And it's very similar to the first Candyman in the way it builds its narrative and the way it ends, actually. (laughs) It was very cool. And also... It was, like, Australian for some reason, which I didn't realize from the trailers. Dang, that just killed it for me. I don't know if I want to watch it anymore. Do you have something against the Aussies? No, I'm just kidding. I love Australia. (laughs) But actually, I will say, the trailers... I hate horror films. I think I've said this on the podcast many times. I'm not a big fan of horror films. I don't like them. But actually, this one did kind of make me feel like hmm i kind of want to check it out it it does seem very interesting like i think when horror films have like a really unique premise they make me feel like i want to actually go out and watch it so i i might check it out i might pass it but okay wait would you give it what was the score you have for it i gave it a peanut m&ms oh wow Okay. I really liked it. I already want to go watch it again, and that rarely happens for me. I I would classify it as like a real horror film as opposed to like a scare film. We've had this conversation in the past, but the point of it is to like actually show you something horrible. It's not just to scare you. And it actually is quite funny a lot of the times, which comes out of nowhere, but it's really nicely balanced. Okay. Would you say that it's, like, not a jump scare movie? It has jump scares, but that's not what it's relying on. And then probably the most, like, traditional horror film, like, scare film aspect of it is it does have quite a bit of body horror that you wouldn't expect. Gotcha. Okay. And then 
The last two on my list are Oppenheimer, which I gave popcorn, and Barbie, which I gave popcorn. Wow, you went through those really quickly. <laughs> okay, so these two actually I have watched as well. So Barbie, really quickly. I liked it a lot, except the thing that was terrible about it for me was the actual movie-going experience. I feel like it was the one of the worst movie theater experiences I've ever had. Interesting. Go on. So many people were just walking into the theater without reservations and trying to find seats even during the movie. So like 30 minutes in, people were like walking through the row and like looking for a seat. Also, it was like the same few groups that kept walking through, which was just kind of annoying. Also, I know maybe this is kind of slightly the target, but like there was a lot of younger teenagers in the movie theater. And I don't know if it's just me or if it's just like LA teenagers just feel like they're just not really respectful for like the movie going experience. I don't know. It's just like they were they're the people next to us, the two girls next to us were like literally answering their cell phones and talking in the movie theater on the cell phone while the movie was playing. And I was like, are you serious? Like take that outside or some of that. Like, and it was usually just like, oh, hey mom, sorry, I'm in the theater right now. I can't talk. And then she'll like <laughs> hang up. It's like, why? Why Why don't you just like either text them back or get out of the theater if you need to say that? It was just like so annoying. That was like the most annoying thing ever. The movie was great, actually. But this is also another thing that people are probably gonna hate me for saying. I think that Barbie had great male acting and Oppenheimer had great female acting. So in Barbie, maybe I'm just a fan of Ryan Gosling. I think Ryan Gosling did an amazing job as Ken. I think he was funny. I think he, he did a great job in all of his scenes. I feel like he carried a lot of his scenes. Margot Robbie also was amazing. And I think those two characters just kind of carried the movie. A lot of the other characters, all the other actors, I didn't really care for or like. I liked the story and I liked the, the whole thing. The only thing I didn't understand, and maybe it's just me, but when they go to the, the real world, the earth, whatever, I don't know how it works, but why did it feel like they were always in Toyland, even when, when they're on Earth? Like, the corporation and everywhere, the school, everything, just always felt like they were still in the toy playground. Is is it like a like a Inception thing where like you think they actually left, but they were just also still being played with, but in like a more realistic 22nd century form kind of thing? Like I don't know. Is, explain it to me. Or or do you also did, is that just me? Did you feel, not feel that way? I didn't really feel that way about anywhere else except for at Mattel Corporation. But I figured that was because basically saying that Mattel is basically like an extension of Barbie Land. But also I, I think they are intentionally obfuscating some of the the capitalism of it all when they are trying to make the corporation seem like this kind of buffoonish group of people <laughs> these corporate execs and all they're doing is just i don't know corporate execing around <laughs> they're just um extreme caricatures of, of a corporate executive so much so that it almost completely takes away any actual relationship to the actual corporation of mattel which i think is the purpose well anyways i will give barbie actually a peanut m&ms when i just strictly think about the movie as itself i would probably give it raisinettes if i took into account the theater aspect of Got it. it but i would watch it again and hopefully have a better viewing of it maybe i'll watch it at home when it comes to like streaming or something i feel like it's going to be a really good one for home 
home streaming because it's kind of long. I feel like you could pause it, walk away, come back, and then start it again, and it would be perfectly fine. Because it's not like a very tense movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I I also agree about the theater-going experience. I think this is what happens when you have a bunch of people who don't go to the movie theater very often, and they're just kind of going because this is the thing to do. You know, this weekend, everybody had to see Barbie, and so they just didn't have theater etiquette, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Because I also had a little bit of that in my theater. I've been hearing stories online, like articles and stuff about people talking or saying how like some theaters stopped the movie when it when it got too crazy and people came in and like started looking for seats and they had to get kicked out. It's such a interesting thing, which is confusing. Like, how can so many people sneak in if like it's doing so well? Like, I don't. I don't get well, they're it. buying tickets to other movies and then sneaking into the Barbie theater, so, which is good for other movies. I guess. Well, I, I mean, that's all I'm gonna say for um, for that one for now. I want to move on to Oppenheimer. Sure. Tell me more about Oppenheimer. First of all, because I was making that connection between I think Brian Gosling did great for Barbie. I think Emily Blunt did a great job in Oppenheimer. Also, Cillian Murphy I think did a great job leading this movie as well, and. I think it was for sure a better experience watching it when I went to the theater. And it was just, it was a beautiful three hour film. I was really surprised that the last hour and a half almost turned into a courtroom drama, but it was still enjoyable. I honestly, the first half, I was like kind of sadly upset with the film because I was like, this kind of doesn't make sense. It's jumping timelines like three four like to three different times throughout the film and i'm like i don't know what's going on what time is it like i don't know i think it was like confusing at first but i feel like that's kind of christopher nolan's thing in general and also like by the end of the film I was like oh okay that makes sense but then now i just want to watch it again so i think like both of the films i will say closing remarks uh, i know you haven't said anything yet so but i would just my closing remarks are i give i would give both of the films peanut m&ms and i would watch both of the films again what do you think about oppenheimer yeah so i gave both films popcorn and i would also watch both of them again i just think for oppenheimer specifically two things about it one i wanted it to be more interesting <laughs> and it kind of was just a straightforward biopic. And even though it's a really, really well-made biopic, you know, it has great acting. I thought pretty much everyone really nailed their characters and made them really dynamic and engaging to watch. Mm -hmm. And it was directed beautifully and visually really nice. It just, it just kind of, it was just, it was a Wikipedia page turned into a movie. A Wikipedia page Christopher Nolanized. Christopher Nolanized. And then that's the second thing is I think Christopher Nolan is a really good director of certain things, like action, sci-fi. He does spectacle really well. But I think other things like horror and historical drama, he may or may not do so well, in my opinion. Gotcha. <laughs> don't want don't want the, the Nolan fan people to come after me. I like his films. This I'm, movie, one of them. I'm one of them, Chase, so you gotta be careful what you're about to say here. <laughs> <laughs> this movie had absolutely 
no horror to it whatsoever. And I think that's partially why Christopher Nolan is so successful, is he kind of has a similar ability to, or it, it results in a similar kind of movie-going phenomenon to Spielberg, where Spielberg is kind of famous for being able to take genre films like horror and make them family-friendly. Nolan just like doesn't do any horror and doesn't put any kind of remotely offensive things in his films at all and so they're kind of mass appealing because no one can get offended by them in any way which is not necessarily a problem he makes you know great big budget movies for that reason i just think this subject matter is one that is so innately tied to horror like real life atrocity and real life horror that it almost does it disservice to not have some of those darker parts of this discussion really fleshed out. Yeah, I, I feel like the moments that it did touch upon it were my favorite parts of the film. I give them both peanut MMs, but I think neither of these films are perfect, but I think they're both films that I did really enjoy and I would watch them again. I think for those reasons, I'm giving them peanut MMs. Both of these movies had incredibly stacked casts like just full of great people who are utterly underutilized in the roles that they were given. But because of these movies are both kind of like iconic in their own way, like Oppenheimer is about Oppenheimer and it's made by Christopher Nolan. That's automatically going to be an iconic awards worthy movie. And then Barbie in this way where they're actually making it like an awards film is immediately iconic as well. So you get all of these like great actors from all over the place who would normally be like leading people in their own right. Like they would be the the lead actor who are kind of relegated to these small roles into like scenes where they may only have four lines in the whole movie. That's also kind of epic and interesting in its own way. But I will say that Oppenheimer and Barbie are definitely the talk of the town. People are, you know, going in and doing the little like Barbenheimer, Oppenbarbie, whatever they're calling it. But I think definitely they're two great films. They're both huge successes, which is, you know, good for them. But I think something that's interesting that caught my eye was the color in these two films. Definitely. I think that the color was very interesting. They're both only very different in their color palettes and their color design, their choices, especially with like Oppenheimer going into like different color schemes and different things like that. So that got us thinking, what color? Why color? <laughs> just, just what is color? What color? Why color? I, I obviously have no idea because I'm colorblind, so. That's true. <laughs> I, I do want to talk to you about that. So why don't we just end our concession impressions? The the curtains have closed on that our concessions impressions talk. And why don't we, you know, take a short break and just jump right in to our filmmaker cookbook section of the, the podcast of Filmmaker's Cookbook and talk a little bit about a movie that we feel that represents color in a really interesting way that we were inspired to talk about after watching both Oppenheimer and Barbie. And that movie is, Chase? Da da da! The Wizard of Oz! <laughs> cool. Thank you. <laughs> Color in movies. Very important, but it's something that you might not even notice. Some people really it catches their eyes, some people it doesn't, and some people it has a weird effect, you know? For instance, like, Chase, you just said you're colorblind. So actually, like, I'm kind of, I'm really curious. I actually didn't even ask you the question because I wanted to ask you live on the air. Even though it's not live, it's being recorded and going to edit it. But still, Chase, like, how is, how is it, one, like, 
how does it feel to be colorblind? I don't know. That's like a. <laughs> how does it feel to be colorblind? How does it feel to be deformed? To like, be utterly. <laughs> like I, I'm just curious because like as a as a fan of films, as someone who studies films, works with film, it feels like it's it must be one dif- more difficult for you to. Like, let's say if you're working on a project and you're like, someone says like, yeah, I really love the the blue in this or or the green in this or something like that. And you're like, yeah, sure, the green. Uh, or like, I don't know, how, how is, is it like, does it get in the way of films for you? And two, how is, how is the experience different? Is it better, do you think? I, you probably can't tell because you're, you can't. You well, can't yeah. be uncolorblind, but like, is it like more vivid or like, tell me what, what is it? What is it like? And like, how does it work? I guess. I mean, first things first, as you, as you said, I've always been colorblind, so I, I can't really say if it's better or worse. It, uh, it just is for me. I will say that generally it means that colors are less vivid, I guess. That's what it's supposed to mean. Again, I only have my experience to talk about it so i don't really notice that but if you see me wearing mismatched colors that might be why it it just uh it makes uh certain colors more difficult for me to distinguish apart so my particular brand of color blindness Mm -hmm. is red green colorblind so is oppenheimer like a really weird film to watch was it just really was it like a lot grayer because i feel like that movie uses a lot of green and red you know yeah i mean i can see the colors green and red i I know it, but he it said makes like, it more difficult to distinguish between close shades of green and red. Oh, so, okay. So, like, if you show me, like, three different colors of green, I would have a hard time distinguishing which green is what. If you showed me three different colors of red, or red, orange, and pink, or whatever, I would have trouble distinguishing between all of those. Unless they're, like, really far apart on the color wheel. You know, when, when they're color grading a movie, if they're using sort of split complementary colors, it can actually help me see it because of the contrast between green and red. I think where it becomes more difficult is in movies like Wes Anderson's movies, where he'll often have an entire screen full of complementary colors, or not complementary, um, colors that are close together on the uh, the color wheel, uh-huh. and it'll just become a kind of blob of, of like one color instead of what maybe you might see, which is like lots of little minute shade differences that are adding to the contrast. But for me, the contrast just kind of dips a little in those moments, which is why I I get really into like movies that are really high contrast. So like, I really love a good deep dark black because black is the best way to add contrast to any scene. When I'm making movies that I've made, they're always really contrasty and they don't necessarily look that contrasty to me, but people will say that they're contrasty (laughs) to me. Filmmakers like Nicholas Winding Refn, he's actually a colorblind filmmaker, and his movies are also very reflective of how colorblind people see, I think, because his movies are exceptionally contrasty as well for that reason, and which is why they're always kind of in this neon noir space. You know, I wish more directors take that and be like, kind of give more awareness out to the colorblind crowd in in the world i mean just use black as long as you have a nice solid black in your shadows we're all good okay nice you heard it you heard it here learn learn from the noir directors yeah with that in mind i feel like this conversation is going to be even more interesting because one i want to hear your thoughts as well about these these ideas but let me tell you my approach to color 
and what I feel about it. And I'm going to take a slight culinary approach to this because, I mean, we are a filmmaker's cookbook and I feel like that would be kind of just to do. Using the words of last year's 2022's The Menu, beginning there's a, a line where they taste this, I forget what it was, like uh, oyster or some of like that, and the, the guy says, you know, wow, this dish has a great mouthfeel. And it was a whole joke. But anyways, I feel like color in movies is like the mouthfeel of a dish. Yeah, a movie has good eye feel. Exactly. So I think just how like a dish could be creamy or crunchy or smooth or snappy, the color in a film could be the same way. Like I think mm -hmm. a dish could just avoid having different textures and mouthfeels, but it can also really go out there and incorporate that mouthfeel into the taste of the film as well. What do you feel, Jace? Color is one of those things that it can have a ton of different effects and impacts on the story and on the film itself. It can be used to kind of meld things together nicely or create kind of a distinct visual language, I think, for a film. And it can be used, you know, very specifically for specific storytelling tasks like an example of that might be the color red in The Sixth Sense. Red everywhere in that movie is a sign of the afterlife, essentially, and the sign mm -hmm. of death. So anywhere red appears, you know death is nearby. Or like um, oranges in Godfather. <laughs> oranges in Godfather as well. Whereas, like, I think something like, or actually even better example, I think would be something like Sicario. Like Sicario uses orange and yellow to oh. really set the scene and kind of set the dryness and the discomfort of the location that they're in. And it really adds to the the feel of this this movie. I do agree with you. What do you think is the best use of color in this film? And we're of course we're talking about The Wizard of Oz. It feels like color can be a character, and I feel like it somewhat does that job in this film. But I also feel like it really adds that extra feeling, that extra ten yards, right? Kind of how like in, for instance, Sin City the use of color really like emphasizes something. Like red is used in the Schindler's List mm -hmm. with a little girl. Like that just adds so much emotion to the film. But also for me, when I also thought of color, I think like, have you seen like The Aviator? Uh-huh, yep. The Martin Scorsese's film. I feel like that also is very an interesting use of color. And I think that is kind of more or less paying homage to this early uh, day of film making but do we want to talk about really quickly technicolor sure let's talk about it i feel like everyone always asks like is the wizard of oz the first color film when which is like obviously no it's been out for a long time but what i think what i what i noticed when i was researching it was one first of all it keeps saying like oh technicolor technicolor and honestly to be honest with you i wasn't fully familiar with the process of technicolor so do you know what technicolor is or or my understanding about Technicolor is that it was a innovative process that used three strips of color film mm -hmm. and then placed them over each other to create a like real life color image. In color theory, there are three primary colors. So there's like red, blue, and yellow. So there might be a red strip, a yellow strip, and a blue strip. 
and then when you layer them over each other, the corresponding values, when light passes through them, creates the accurate shade. Because you can create any color by mixing, in different proportion, the three primary colors, and black and white. Yeah, cool. All right, well, you've got it. Then take color discussion. <laughs> no, I was kidding. Uh, I was looking at pictures of behind the scenes, the Wizard of Oz stuff, and man, those cameras were huge. Like, you could fit an entire adult dead body in there or something like that. I mean, it could be a live body, but I mean... I mean, where do you think they stored all the munchkins after filming? Oh, that's where... I mean, you probably could fit like two or three of munchkins in there, but what I heard was that this film kind of distributed Technicolor and kind of more or less got it popularized, even though the process has been around for a while. But people were like, wow, this is really cool. This is a really great film. Even though the, technically the film didn't like wasn't a huge box office success at the time it definitely had a a great reviews and it kind of over time has now become you know one of the top films ever and actually funny enough i know we kind of more or less stopped doing our afi's top 20 but we would have done this film eventually anyways so because it's it's in there as well i think it's like number 10 or something so now it's considered one of the top 10 films of all time. I think it helped popularize that, and it also helped popularize the musical as a film. And the use of color kind of became synonymous with all of those musicals. Being able to create those colors really helped in creating the kind of engagement visually that you need for a a musical film because musicals are kind of no no offense to musicals but they're not they're not as engaging when they're in black and white (laughs) the other thing that this that this discussion leads into is how color is kind of linked to things like genre for instance musicals obviously have this kind of technicolor dream fantasy thing going on but there are other genres that have you know pretty standard color play for instance movies like Fantasy films tend to use vibrant colors. Uh, Film noir, you know, it started in kind of this black and white place, but it still has that high contrast look. Like we talked about Nicholas Winding Refn, most of his films are considered neon noir films uh, Mm. because they represent a neon colorful world, but they still rely heavily on hyper-contrasted noir styling. Things like comedies are usually very bright and bold and saturated colors to like emphasize the humor. Romance films are always almost always in this kind of warm glow. Science fiction is usually like pure white with like blues and and greens. And so a lot of these films get this kind of genre-specific coloring and you know you can either use that to great effect to immediately immerse your audience in the mood and tone of of that genre or you can even do the reverse if you think of a movie like midsomar how are we supposed to say it that movie is obviously very brightly lit and very colorful and is almost lit like a comedy film would be lit but it's obviously a really dark horror film mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it's an interesting contrast in tones that that movie creates because of that. And I, I actually haven't really thought about it that way, but that, that's really interesting. So I was thinking that, and I was just thinking about uh, Baby Driver is not a, technically a musical, but it definitely has like very musical coloring, which I don't know if you have, if you've watched it recently, but I've watched it a few times when it came out. And that was the thing that really came out to me, which is that like very interesting colors and 
how like each character has like their own color yeah theme. strong primary color associations yeah and i think that's like a really interesting connection there that's that's really cool it's also interesting in this movie how they use color because they don't just use color to like distinguish between the fantasy world and the real world they use color in like symbolic ways too so like the green for instance representing kind of greed and and money so that's why both the emerald city is green and the witch is green because they're both representations of greed and then the ruby red slippers because red represents power in this movie right which is why the witches which every time she uses her her power it creates a puff of red smoke and so they're they're really creating kind of narrative links for color as well and then there's even kind of psychological things going on with like the yellow of the yellow brick road and yellow kind of psychologically being tied to at least in the western world uh, to things like hope and happiness I didn't quite make that connection, but it makes total sense. And I feel like that's the thing that I love about color is that it could be very dynamic and like creative. Like telling a story, you can tell a story one way, but then like there's those deeper elements that really add to the film overall. Something that you can like rewatch and see it again and watch again and find out like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't really notice that. Color is a tool that filmmakers can use to really add that depth mm -hmm. yeah i have some filmmaker quotes about using color do you want an alfred hitchcock quote i love i love hitchcock so let's go with it his quote is the colors in a film should be like the pieces in a jigsaw puzzle each one important yet meaningless alone it is the combination that counts interesting yeah i agree definitely i think color is like one of those things that is a Swiss army knife for a filmmaker. It can kind of do anything and everything you want it to. You just have to be specific about how you use it. Same yeah. with like editing or same with camera blocking or camera movements is it's all about how you as a filmmaker and a storyteller set up a specific thing to have meaning. So if you set up green to mean things like greediness and money, every time greediness and money appears on the screen it should be green or have some sort of green element to it that's how it becomes narratively strong and how the audience grows to really enjoy the color because they're looking for that sort of payoff in the narrative they're, they're they want some reason to be engaged and following the puzzle pieces as hitchcock puts it that you're laying out for them definitely just like how in dishes, those added elements, those toolkits add an extension of different flavors to a dish. So how about we just maybe go in the kitchen and fool around a little bit and try to come up with a dish that has a nice color to it. Uh, not phys physically a nice color to it, but like that same type of um, presence in the dish that the Wizard of Oz has with color. Let's run over there, just take a quick break and get set up in the kitchen and let's jump right into making a dish. How do you feel? Sounds good. Whew, okay, plank, chef's plank, hats plank. are on, aprons on. 
Okay, so we're in the kitchen, we're here. Let's get into the flavors of The Wizard of Oz. Just like all these films we were doing in the top 20 film before for AFI's top 20, it does definitely have a really well-balanced flavor. However, I will say that the, the core three flavors to me are happiness, sad, and anger little bit, which would translate to sweet, salty, and a little bit of umami in there. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with all those. Those are my three top flavors as well. Whew, great. It's, it's, you we're know, in always... agreement for once. Yeah, it feels great when we're in agreement. Cool. Yeah, I think the other ones are there. I think surprise is somewhat there with like the the transition, but I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've watched the film so many times that I wasn't as surprised, but like I try to look through the film as if it was my first time, and it's there, but it's very subtle. Definitely yeah. the happy and the sad are like the core two, and I think anger is like a close second, and then everything else after that is like a tertiary flavor. Yeah, I agree with that. Great. In my mind, the color of the film, it still really feels like a texture, like a texture thing. And I'm definitely a very big texture eater, as I am a, a color like visually i love to see visual design in film like color grading and color and just different expression through a film through color so i think that for me i feel like this dish whatever it is needs to represent the three core flavors of sweet salty and umami but also it, it to me needs to have like a slight mouth feel to it like a nice texture i don't want to have a bad texture i i for you i don't know how you feel but i i hate two different types of textures. Very crunchy textures like cartilage or things like that and very slimy or surprising textures. Like, I don't know if you had like uh, popping boba or like salmon eggs, um, like ikura or something like that. Like, Yep, I actually really enjoy the popping boga, boba. Um, I hate it, I hate it. <laughs> I, it's just it's a little it's a little surprise in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I I am okay without that surprise. I just I'll just take my normal boba, you know. But I do like texture. Like I love ice cream that has. I don't like just plain vanilla ice cream. As a kid, I always loved cookies and cream. I loved having cookies in yeah, the ice cream mix. Yeah, yeah, you know, like those different textures. And to this day, I love ice creams that have like a mixture of things. When I thinking of all these things in this movie and everything. The first thing that I thought of was like an old-fashioned banana split. Interesting. I'm going to take you back in time here for a second, Chase. Back in the day, they weren't called ice cream parlors. They were called pharmacies. And you would go in and you would order like a huge ice cream sundae. And you would have like two or three like scoops of ice cream with whipped cream and peanuts and cherries and a banana split in two, and some chocolate drizzle, and some caramel drizzle, and you'll have all of that, and you take a bite, mmm, delicioso. I think that is kind of what I was thinking. However, I want to take more of a different approach, because I feel like whenever I think of like one of those old-style ice cream places, I feel like they're overly sweet. It definitely has the texture, and it has the sweetness, but I think like adding some salty and umami flavors in there will definitely round this dish to better represent The Wizard of Oz. However, 
that was like my first idea from talking about this movie to here today. But what do you think? Well, first off, I want to say I don't remember those days because I was not alive in the 1950s. <laughs> well, I, I just quickly, there's a in South Pasadena, and there used to it's still there actually. So if you still want to if you want to try out this experience, then then definitely go there. It's um, it's a great ice cream experience. It's called the I think like the the Fair Oaks Pharmacy because it's on Fair Oaks in Pasadena. And they do these old classic like ice cream sundaes and stuff. Definitely order one and eat it with like five people because it's a lot of ice cream and it's really sweet, but it's really great and it, it's, it looks beautiful. So I'd say, yeah, so that's like, that was my memory. So um, continue, what, what is your idea here? So I also went in kind of the frozen treats direction. I was thinking of sorbet because I was inspired by the colors of the film and sorbet as opposed to ice cream is usually a lot more colorful or sherbet. Is it sorbet or sherbet? How do you say that? Uh, they're two different things. Okay. So so sherbet and sorbet, one has milk and one doesn't. So sorbet would just be a just like a frozen dessert with just ice and fruit juice or like fruit puree. Sherbet has also added some cream or milk or something, egg white or something like that as well. Got it. I think I'm thinking of sorbet. I created a recipe for over the rainbow sorbet with lots of different colors and each kind of little ball of sorbet is a different flavor uh, representing one of these flavors that are our core flavors so sweet salty and umami being the, the three main flavors Interesting. um so like a sweet mango sorbet a kind of tomato Sure, a tomato could be cool. I had like a, a chili lime watermelon. That That's what I came up with. Ooh. And then a salty caramel apple sorbet. Ooh, I love it. And then a drizzle of chocolate sauce over it to get that you know, a little bit of bitterness that's in there as well. Yeah, like a really dark chocolate. I had that idea too, like a really dark, like high cacao chocolate sauce which mm -hmm. adds a nice bitterness to it. That's what I was thinking. But yeah, continue. I like this. And then freeze-dried raspberries, like sprinkled on top to add that kind of bite. And then also some tangy contrast. And then here's the kicker, a small dollop of rich umami packed miso caramel. Ooh, actually, I like that a lot. All right, forget my tomato one. I was trying to just incorporate umami into it because I thought because to tomatoes have like a nice umami flavor, but I, I do like this miso caramel. That sounds really amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I, I think tomato could be cool though. I like tomato because it's also a, like a primary color and it's it'll it would be like a nice red. That that was also why I was incorporating some of these colors like watermelon to get like some interesting color contrast because you have like the mango that's kind of orange, you have red with the watermelon, mm -hmm. and then you have some like green apple for the green and couldn't really think of anything for yellow. So I don't know, we need like a yellow. Uh is mango mango's I guess it's it's I thought it was more orange, but what, what would be a good yeah. yellow? Just dye it yellow. Passion fruit? Like, but it's, that's kind of sweet, though. But it's for the sweet one. I do love passion fruit. Like, I, I love, my one of my favorite recent things, sweet, is like a passion fruit cacao. Like, a, which is like passion fruit mixed with like uh, cacao chips. Like, really mm. bitter chocolate chips. Mmm, that's amazing. I love it. Ooh, what so, about like a, a pomelo? Okay. 
Sure. It's like a like a giant orange. I thought pomelos were more grapefruit adjacent. I mean, that that is it isn't grapefruit kind of like a giant orange. <laughs> I guess, but I think they're. I just I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm just not a big fan of grapefruits or pomelos in, in my opinion. I mean, we we could do like banana. Bananas are yellow. Yeah, that's true. We could do pineapple. Ooh, let's do pineapple. I love pineapple too. Pineapple could be fun. We could do durian. No, 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 no. <laughs> Make the smelliest dish. As long as we don't choose pear. I hate pears. Hate. What's, what's I wrong with pears? Them. I loathe pears. That's and I just hate. I loathe them. Why? I think they're the worst fruit ever in the entire existence of all fruit. Fascinating. They're so tart. Is that why? They're so bland. They taste like nothing. They taste like I'd rather eat or drink anything besides a pear. Interesting. They, That's they how much I hate blend. Uh, and, you know, everyone's always like, oh, you haven't tried like an Asian pear. I have. I've, I've tried everything. Because you know what? Everyone's like, oh, you haven't tried it. It's been like five years. All right. I tried them again and I still hate them. Ugh, okay. Anyways, I'm sorry. I'm derailing us. So I love this idea. Forget mine. I think we. I like how we. Well, I mean, I think they're very similar. It's, it's a, they're similar. It's a, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a combination. And I think I think you had a a lot more well-rounded idea than I did. I think let's just go with yours. That sounds amazing. I love I love every single bit of that. So do you want to just really quickly summarize that dish again? Sure. So it's over the rainbow sorbet, and it is three balls of sorbet. The first one being a sweet pineapple sorbet. The second one is a chili lime watermelon. The final one is a salty caramel apple sorbet for green. And then drizzle of nice dark chocolate uh, over the top. And then a dusting of freeze-dried raspberries and finally top it off with a dollop of miso caramel to add a nice binding of umami throughout and there you go that that's the over the rainbow sorbet i'm really excited I, I want to do this and i know i feel like we've talked about it before but i really want to actually go out there and make these dishes I'm, this would be fun to photograph I, I i'm super excited to make, would one day make this dish it sounds so fun <laughs> i think this is the fastest we've ever come to a dish I, you ever. won me i think like <laughs> I, maybe you just after doing this for some time maybe you just maybe knew like the flavors or I, ideas i like or something because like those are just the straight miso. up like yeah maybe it's just yeah. like that combination of some of those flavors i just really jamming with me so not only does this dish i think well-rounded and represents the flavors of the movie but i think also it really represents well the colors as well like you said you have those colors in there and i think like how i was saying like the mouthfeel because especially like the freeze-dried raspberries and the caramel and the chocolate and like all these elements i almost was gonna pitch in adding like a crumble of like uh, pistachio nuts or something like that anyways i think this is great i love this dish i this is a great movie and i think we came to a great understanding i think is that anything else you want to add or i think i feel like that's good no I'm, there. I'm very happy with this yeah i think i'm me too so i think i hope everyone at, at home you all enjoyed listening to us talk about this film and this dish let us know if you feel like this dish best represents this film and if you enjoyed this new format, again, this is our second time doing it. So, you know, we're still ironing out things, but let us know, you know, if you uh, enjoyed, 
let us know on Instagram or Twitter or give us a review on Apple Podcast or, you know, wherever you're listening to this. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode of Filmmakers Code Club. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you.